As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can choose from a variety of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Vince Vitale, who's an apologist and an author whose PhD research involved developing a new response to the problem of evil. He outlined some of his thinking on the topic of suffering and evil in his book, Why Suffering? and also in his academic publication, Non-Identity Theodicy, A Grace-Based Response to the Problem of Evil. Well, Vince, welcome back to the podcast. We're going to be talking specifically about some of the research that you've done around suffering and evil. And I'm I'm well aware that this is a massive, massive topic and we're just going to be kind of skimming the surface today. Um, but obviously, there's, there's lots of great resources that you've written and I just want to kind of point people to that. You've got a book called Why Suffering and then you've got your kind of academic pricey of of the the problem of suffering called non-identity theodicy a grace-based response to the problem of evil but i guess let's sort of step back a little bit what why did you choose to focus your graduate studies on the problem of suffering oh thanks for thanks for having me and good job getting that full title out without uh, <laughs> i've been practicing <laughs> the mouthful yeah well done well done um you know Shortly after I came to faith, Christian faith, um, probably the first conversation I ever had about suffering after coming to faith was with my aunt, uh, my aunt Regina. It was at a family gathering, and uh, she shared with me some of the suffering that she was going through in her life. Quite personal suffering had to do with her son, my cousin, and I had, you know, been reading these books and getting my head around the Christian faith and the answers to different questions. And I remember she sort of stopped and I and I started spouting some of my sort of abstract philosophical explanations for why God might allow suffering. And she was very gracious, uh, listened to me, you know, patiently. And then at the end, she said, uh, but Vince, that doesn't speak to me as a mother. And it, it really hit me, but it was so good for me, for her to, you know, just be honest about, about that response. And so in some ways, I feel like this was always a topic that um, I wanted to be able to speak to um, in a way that was thoughtful, but also pastoral. Uh, and then as I was coming to my, my PhD topic, uh, I was thinking I want to pick a topic, which is a serious academic topic, but also a question that people have, you know, non-philosophers actually have the question. 
and a question that wasn't going to sort of go out of fashion. You know, uh, this is a question people have now, but they're not going to have it in two or three years. This is a perennial question that people need to deal with and it has a concrete impact on their lives. And so I thought just from a ministry perspective, even um, it would be a question that would allow me to journey with people. Did your research in this area, did that initiate interesting conversations with people that you met as a student? I guess, you know, we talked a little bit in the in the past episode about your teammates, football teammates, things like that. When they asked kind of what you were studying and I guess that's like quite a good kind of invitation to then talk about this stuff, is it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, I think it's, you know, it's amazing how much time we spend just shooting the breeze. Uh, you know, with, with people, oftentimes people, uh, you know, feel like it's so difficult to have a faith conversation with someone. But I think that's often because, you, you know, we we find it difficult to get from shooting the breeze to Jesus. <laughs> but there's this whole area of middle ground uh, of meaningful conversation that, uh, you know, I think Jesus makes his way into very naturally. And so certainly it was a it was a real blessing to be spending so much time thinking about a topic that was relevant in a meaningful way to so many people's lives and even just a simple question in terms of how would you answer the question that I'm working on in my PhD? Is this something which has impacted you personally uh, could open up really significant conversation? Yeah. And was that something that you wrestled with before you became a Christian? Had you thought a lot about the problem of suffering and, and, and did you have kind of an answer that you found satisfactory without God being in the picture? It's a good question. You know, it's like hard to get yourself back to your mindset, you know, so long ago. But uh, regrettably, I think not very much. Um, I think about Mark. I think about Mark Twain. You know, saying we treat death as an unfounded rumor. Uh, I think that was more my posture. You know, life had gone pretty well. I had been pretty successful at things. I hadn't dealt with a lot of suffering in my own experience. I, I think I was probably pretty. Uh, pretty callous um, towards suffering. So and I appreciate you asking that question because it allows me to even think back to that and really brings me to a point of gratitude of having spent this much time thinking mm. about it. So you wouldn't have necessarily had like a robust answer that you could have fallen back on. It just wasn't really kind of in your, you, you just weren't really thinking about it. I think that's right. And I think I probably, you know, there probably would have been a sort of no pain, no gain, you know, sort of attitude um, toward it, whether I would have articulated it that way. Uh, but a lot of that would have been my ignorance of the depths of suffering that people really experience in life. Yeah. Well, I guess a, a lot of atheists have thought about this question. And and so I'm I'm asking you to kind of assume what people are thinking. So, you know, <laughs> apologies. Certainly, certainly. But 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 what what would be the kind of logical conclusion, the solution to the problem of suffering if we do take God out of the picture? If you take God out of the picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, I mean, in, in one sense, you could think you can resolve the problem by not having to look at suffering as anything other than um, a natural process. Uh, I remember um, on a vacation once, um, uh, two friends of mine were standing looking at this quite an odd scenario but this one bird was chasing this other bird and sort of like knocked it down and appeared to be like trying to eat it it was like a really Lovely. visceral <laughs> yeah exactly it was like this really visceral scene you don't normally mm. see birds do that uh, and and one friend said that is evil and the other friend said that's not evil that's just nature uh and it was an interesting 
sort of commentary um, that whether it's birds or humans, you know, from an ethic perspective, that's one response that you could have. Actually, we may not like this, um, but actually nothing's gone wrong. There's not a problem to solve. These are, these are just natural processes. Uh, I think for me, at least, as I did get older uh, and experienced suffering and saw other people's experience suffering, there was this deep sense that, no, there's something wrong about that. There's actually something unnatural um, about that. And how do we understand that in the context of our worldview? Uh, obviously, for you, when we're talking about the problem of suffering, you very firmly put God into the picture. And I'm aware, as I said, we are just going to be scratching the surface of this. But would you spend a little bit of time just kind of summarizing your non-identity theodicy and and why you kind of think it's a slightly different approach than some of the things that you'd sort of read about or or experienced. So I, I, get, I guess the kind of the key question with all of this is why couldn't God have created a world where there isn't any suffering? Uh, okay, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very, very dangerous question to ask uh, <laughs> someone, someone to summarize their PhD research. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, yeah, interesting the way you put that at the end. I would say uh, God, God could have. God could create a world with, um, with no suffering, and, and maybe he has. Uh, you know, I, I believe in other realms uh, like heaven. I believe in other beings like angels. I'm not committed to how many universes God has uh, created, so... For all I, for all I know, maybe he has created other um, types of creation where where there's not suffering. Uh, but what I would say in the approach that I take is that um, had he done that, or in cases where he has done that, I don't think that you or I or the people that we love or the people that we see walking down the street every day would have existed. And I think that God creates out of a particular love and a particular desire for each of those individuals and those individuals as a as a community and sometimes i tell this um story of my parents on their second date um i'm not recommending this approach but it is a true story <laughs> where uh, they were standing on uh, a bridge and my dad noticed uh, a ring on my mom's finger he asked about it she said that's just uh, from one of my old boyfriends i just wear it because i think it looks nice my dad said, oh, yeah, it's nice. Let me see it. My mom took it off, handed it to my dad, and my dad threw it off the bridge and watched it sink and, and then made this kind of bold statement of, you know, you won't be needing that anymore. And um, my mom loved it. Thankfully. Yeah, it says something, <laughs> says something about my family and the personalities and everything, thankfully. Um, but exactly, exactly, thankfully for me, because I'm, you know, I might have thought, well, what if my mom had a reasonable response and said, that's not normal? I'm going to go back with the old boyfriend. I might be tempted to think, well, maybe maybe that would have been better off for me. Maybe the old boyfriend would have been taller or better looking or, you know, uh, lived in a castle. I could have been royalty, you know. Um, but then at some point in that thought process, I should catch myself and think, oh, no, wait, there's a philosophical mistake in that line of thinking. Because, of course, if my mom had married her old boyfriend and not my dad, maybe they would have had some very nice kids, but I would not have been one of them. So it doesn't take much to change procreation history. You know, my dad throwing a, a ring off of a bridge can change who winds up getting together, who winds up coming to exist. So what about God deciding what sort of universe to create and how that universe is going to unfold? Uh, and what if it's the case that even before the foundation of the world, God had specific people in mind that he wanted to choose to exist because he wanted to love them and he wanted to invite them into relationship with himself. 
There's a, there's a great little sentence in your academic research. I'm just going to read it because it felt like it sort of summed up really helpfully to me. Say, so often we wish we could take suffering out of our world while keeping everything else the same, but it doesn't work that way. What we love is intricately interwoven with the contingent features of the world that we inhabit. Sometimes we very understandably wish that the world had been different, but in doing so, we may be unwittingly wishing ourselves and those we love right out of existence. And I guess that's the kind of key part of your research, right? Is that by saying, I wish there was a world without suffering, but but where I still exist, it's like, that's just a philosophical mistake because by doing that, you are wishing yourself out of existence. Yeah, exactly right. And and when we think about the problem of, of suffering as it relates to God, that's I think that's how we often do it. We picture ourselves in this world with all of its suffering and brokenness. Then we picture ourselves in a very different world with no suffering or far less suffering. And then we think, surely God should have made me and the people that I love in that very different world with no suffering or far less suffering. We never ask the question, would it still be me and the people I love in that very different world? And basically my research says, hey, that's a complicated question. And I actually think the conclusion is no, that wouldn't have been you. And so what if it was the case that God wasn't just after, you know, some general value in the universe? What was he was actually after particular people that he found himself with a love for and I think that actually aligns well with the particularity of love that we see expressed in the Christian faith. I guess, would someone potentially object to, to your theorizing by saying, well, look, if he's God, can't he do anything? Um, and therefore, could he not just create a world that, that it, where it is still you, but there is no suffering? Or would you say that actually that's as you said, it's a philosophical mis mistake, but is it also asking God to kind of act in a way that's logically incoherent? Uh, yes, that's great. Oh, good. Yeah, good. We'll get into the philosophy. I love it. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ruth. It's so Just it's to such be clear, an interesting I am question. Not, I am not a philosopher, so I do not understand these things, and you're doing such a great job of helping me to understand, so thank you. <laughs> not at all. This is, no, this is a great philosophical question. You know, so one interesting thing about that is if we say, so if we say God can do anything, then the problem sort of dissolves anyway. Because then I can just say, well, God made evil good. And you say, well, he can't make evil good. That's incoherent. And I say, well, he can do incoherent stuff. So in some ways, somebody might want to say that against my position, but then I'm happy to say it back against their position and say, well, now the problem dissolves in the first place. Uh, so the way that I think about this, at least, is yes, God can do anything. But the question is, what is a thing? Like We actually have to designate some sort of concept for him to do. And so, for example, I don't think that God can make a square circle, but that's not because I think there's something God can't do. It's because I don't think a square circle is a thing. And you can put the two words next to each other, but I don't think you've actually designated a concept for him to create or, or interact with. You know, you could put, I think square circle is the same thing as like um, uh, podcast chicken. <laughs> yeah, can, yeah, you know, so, can God make a podcast chicken? Like you can, you can put two words next to each other, but I haven't designated a thing for Him to do. And so, what I would say is that if we say, "Hey, well, why couldn't God have you know, um, uh, you know made made Ruth in 1823, or why couldn't God have made Ruth by two different parents?" I think it's like square circle. I think actually, yeah, we can we can say that, but we actually haven't designated a coherent concept because if god could make ruth in 1823 or by uh, two different parents then what's to stop god from making ruth under the same exact circumstances that he made me 
And then what's the difference between me and Ruth? So you, you wind up in some paradoxes if you don't say there's a difference between concepts God can create and then things which are actually not concepts at all. We're just putting words next to each other. But it's a great question, and I've, I've heard it a number of times. And, and a key part of, of like why you are you is because of the suffering in your own life, but in the kind of lo- the, the lives of generations before you, it is sort of contingent on on how you came to be. Yes, that's a good point. And not just, not, not even in one sense, not so much your own life, but the system as a whole that has produced you. Um, the, the sort of the general system of allowing suffering to some extent in this world has allowed for each person to come to exist and, and, and allows for future people to come to exist who I also believe that God wants to, wants to love. And again, for all I know, maybe he's created other um, uh, situations in which other people are coming into existence. Maybe some of them are more impressive than us, and maybe some of them suffer less than us. That's all great and good. My God's very creative. I just think that it could be within his loving character to desire to bring into existence this world despite hating the suffering in it because of being so committed to loving the individuals that this world allows to come to exist and offering each one of them an eternal life, which will actually be the vast majority of their overall life. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. So one part of, um, I guess, even just the title of your academic work, Non-Identity Theodicy, A Grace-Based Response to the Problem of Evil, that's kind of got me thinking, like, what is it, do you think, about your um, about your argument, about your response that's grace-based? It, is that uh, like, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you asking that because I, I wanted grace in the subtitle specifically so people would make the connection. But I always kind of like wonder myself, like, do people... You know, is the connection obvious and how obvious it is? Once you've thought so long about something, you can't tell anymore. So uh, that that's a really good question. And and I, I think of it um, along those lines of the fact that God has chosen to to bring into existence a universe that allowed for me to exist and you to exist and all the other individuals to exist, but not because we in some way merited that. Um, not because we're the most impressive creatures that God could have created. Um, and, and an analogy that I think of sometimes is if, uh, if, if someone were to walk into an orphanage and choose a child to adopt as their own and, you know, on the left-hand side is, um, clearly objectively the most impressive child, you know, they did the IQ test, highest IQ, most athletic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as you walk into this orphanage, you just find yourself drawn to this child that you see on the right. And, you know, by sort of objective standards, somebody might say, well, much more average, um, by, by the same standards, but you just, you just find yourself with a love for that child. You, you know, the way that, that their hair curls, the, the, something about her eyes, you can't even say what it is, but there's like this particularity to your love for that specific individual, which is not comparative. It's not because you think they're better than other children that, that you could choose. And, and, and you take that child home and, and, and give that child a home and a, um, and a good existence. I think that could be an act of love uh, and an act of grace because it's not based on 
our um, worth, our merit, or in some ways us being comparatively better than other creatures that God could have created. Now, Vince, this this might be really difficult, and, and I'm really sorry if this is really hard, but I guess I've been thinking quite a lot about this and and the kind of philosophical implications for, for various things. And I guess one of the most obvious examples in my life is I had a miscarriage a few years ago, and then like fairly soon after that miscarriage, I ended up conceiving Eden. And so I know that actually had I carried this baby to term, there, there wouldn't be an Eden, my baby now, like she wouldn't exist philosophically speaking. So, for, and I know you tell this sort of similar story in your academic research about your friend who, who experienced the same thing. And, and so I guess I know philosophically your argument totally works. But I guess it comes kind of down to what you were saying about your aunt Regina as a mum. It, it, like, I guess my question is: d- Does that sort of pastorally speak to someone? And I suppose for for me, I had the good news. I had Eden at the end of the story. That there was hope in the midst of the brokenness. But but sadly, some of my friends don't have that good news story. And actually, looking at their life, it it, it is just brokenness and brokenness and miscarriage and miscarriage and and, and death and whatever and, and and so how how does a totally philosophically sound argument, I 100% get that, but, but how does it speak pastorally to someone who is in the throes of suffering? Yeah, thank you, Ruth. Uh, yeah, thank you for being vulnerable and for making the conversation real. Uh, very much appreciate that. Uh, you know, my wife, uh, Joe, and I went through that, that same experience of a uh, of a miscarriage and then um, and then getting pregnant shortly thereafter and uh, uh, it was it was it was such a um, it was such a deep grief um, and you're absolutely right y- you know even when we sort of realized wow like our children are connected in a deep way and that was hopeful um, you know Jonathan couldn't have existed had Joe still been carrying. Luca, uh, and so uh, John, Jonathan's middle name is Lucian, um, as a way of uh, of referring back to his sister um, Luca, and reminding us of the way that their lives are intricately connected, and even the gospel imagery that in her death this life was made possible, and then the eternal hopefulness that one day we'll be together as a family. Uh, of five rather than our, our our family of four so so there's so much that we're so deeply thankful for and yet you know there's this this very um i think christ-like love of a parent for the one um that was lost and that's not that's not changed even in in the hopefulness and even in the thankfulness for for jonathan um there's still you know um years later this this deep longing um, for Luca and, and for us at least one of the um, one of the biggest uh, graces we, we had we had not heard her uh, heartbeat yet um, when when she passed um, and you know for some reason that just always um, sticks with me you know that I just just so that I didn't hear her heartbeat um, and again like that that hopefulness that um, this is the first thing I'm going to do it's the first thing I'm going to do in eternity is is put my put my my head on her chest and listen to her um, to her heartbeat. Um, we we got the news of that Joe was likely to miscarry at the I remember the doctor's office. Uh, we then we went out to our car, 
we didn't feel like just going home. We certainly didn't feel like cooking dinner. Um, we decided in the car, we had been thinking about the name Luca. We decided we would name, name her Luca, um, you know, there in the car. Uh, and then, and then I just said, just, um, just Yelp, whatever the nearest pizza place is, and we'll just, we'll go there for dinner. And, uh, so Joe just brought up Yelp pizza, hit it, didn't look at, didn't look at it, just hit it. We, we drove the directions and, uh, we pull into, we pull into the parking lot and, um, and the sign out front of the shop is, uh, Luca Pizzeria. Uh, and, uh, and, and I guess this gets back to the sort of pastoral response, um, you know, the philosophical theory is, is just not the pastoral, um, response, you know, the, the pastoral response is, you know, that was the way God did it in our life, but just God saying, I'm here. Um, I'm not giving an answer right now, even if I did, it wouldn't do any good, but, um, but I am here. And, uh, and I think here as one who understands, you know, and I think about Jesus in the garden saying, my heart is sorrowful even to death. That's a very significant um, line for me, and it's very significant to my faith that I worship a God who didn't stay far off on some heavenly throne, you know, as we as we suffered. I remember our other son, as he went through testing on his heart, you know, and had just all these wires and everything going into him, and he's just, I think he was like one at the time, you know, he couldn't understand anything and he's just on the bed, just screaming, you know, and um, uh, I couldn't explain anything to him. He wouldn't even have understood. Even if he did, it wouldn't have helped. Um, it wasn't like a problem with the theories or the or the reasoning. It's, it wasn't the question. The question was not why am I suffering? The question was how do I deal with this? And, you know, I just remember just, I just instinctively just drew really close to him and just said, I'm here. It's over and over. I had to say, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Daddy's here. And I just said that over and over and over. Um, and I guess as I think about my own faith, I, I feel like that's, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is God saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Jesus himself, here I am. I, I come. I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I'll come in. I'll eat with you and you with me. This invitation to relationship because I'm here and I, and I have been through the depths of suffering. Um, as you have. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I know that was sort of extended, but that's a bit of my, my own, um, experience. And, um, and so I think they're two different questions. I, I think both questions are important. I think both questions are important. Um, but in, in my research, I was really asking the question, why would God allow this suffering? And for some people, that's an important intellectual question to work through so that God can then speak to the heart but there's the much more practical question of how do we deal with suffering um, when it when it confronts us in our own lives, and I think that's a different question that needs to be responded to differently. Yeah, and so would you say that perhaps your non-identity theodicy response needs to be held kind of in in like at the same time as other approaches to the problem of suffering, say looking at the person of Jesus and, and all of that? Is it is it perhaps something that like maybe from a philosophical perspective and as you say academic question yes of course you could just be looking at your one response but when you're looking at kind of a holistic view um is that something where you need to kind of hold hold it with other theories and 
answers. Very much. Very much so. And for multiple reasons. One, for this reason, that there are multiple questions being asked. And sometimes it's a philosophical question. Sometimes it is really a pastoral question. And really, I mean, they relate, but they are distinct questions. Um, but also, I, I, I believe, you know, the approach that I've outlined is consistent with all of the other major approaches to this question from a Christian perspective, whether it's a free will defense or a greater goods defense or a skeptical theist um, defense, nothing that I say contradicts those other approaches. And uh, something that most people don't realize can be true is that sometimes, not always, but sometimes um, several bad arguments makes a good argument. <laughs> um, sounds really funny when you say it, um, but I, I, I think of it uh, a little bit, a little bit like this. Um, say you were, say you were, you know, trying to, um, you're trying to figure out who stole something from, uh, from your office. Okay. And you have different, you have different clues. You have different pointers to who it might've been. And, you know, if it was someone left their shoe and it's a size seven shoe, well, that's not a good argument for who it is because tons of people have a size seven shoe. And then you find, you know, somebody left their glasses, you find a piece of brown hair, you, you know, you, you find a, 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 a premier folder on the <laughs> ground, right? Uh, Tons of people work at Premier, right? So it's that's not a good. Every one of those arguments in isolation would be terrible evidence to come to a conclusion about who the person is. But if you get four, five, six of those pieces of evidence, those clues together, you might actually have like an overwhelming case to know exactly who it was. And actually, sometimes the arguments for God's existence, and even some of the arguments in response to the problem of suffering can work that way. And oftentimes people don't realize that probability works in that way. And so what we often tend to do is we look at all the arguments in isolation, arguments for God's existence. We look at the cosmological argument and say, oh, that's interesting, but does it get me above 50% in terms of my belief? No. Okay, scrap that. What about fine tuning? No. Okay, scrap that. What about the resurrection? And we never realize that actually you can't just throw one away and now look at the next one in isolation. I think something similar is true in terms of a cumulative um, case in response to um, evil and evil and suffering, where you may find that no one response does enough work um, to give you confidence as a response. And yet, when you put together, uh, and in in one of my books, that's what what I try to do, where you put together eight or nine of these responses, and now I think the case is actually very strong. Well, and Vince, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned your book because I would highly recommend that people look at um, some of the stuff you've written because, as I said, we are just sort of brushing the surface of, of this. But I guess as we end this podcast, like, what would you want to say to someone who is going through the depths of great suffering right now? I feel like perhaps some of the stuff you shared before might well speak into their situation. But I, but I guess in my head, I'm thinking perhaps of someone who would respond to your um, your sort of philosophical argument that a world without suffering would be a world where they've wished themselves out of existence, but perhaps the suffering that they're experiencing is, is, is so extreme that actually they kind of yeah. would rather wish themselves out of existence. And in some senses, they would rather be dead than go through just the awful stuff that they're going through now. I mean, how would you respond to someone in that situation, Vince? Yes, that's very fair. And I, you know, I, mean, I think the response would just be, I'm so sorry. Um, and I, I do believe that 
um, God is with you and that he sees you and that he loves you. Um, I, you know, I think that God can understand that person's perspective. If Jesus really lived a human life, sweat blood in the garden, you know, the intensity of the suffering, you know, and said, my heart is sorrowful even to death. Um, and that may not, that may not be the right moment for someone to consider things from, in a sense, the other perspective, you know, but at some point, um, someone may then think, well, maybe I can understand this from God's perspective as well as a parent. Um, cause my, you know, I pray that my children don't go through suffering of that intensity, but if they do, and if they wished their life out of existence, I can, I can both sympathize with what their experience is and also as a parent say, as your parents, no, that's not what I want. I couldn't bear that. I love you too much. I have better plans for you. It's going to be better days ahead. And I can't even, like, I don't even have the power to, to really offer that with assurance. Um, but God does have that power to offer with assurance. Uh, and I, uh, I think this is, it's worth thinking more about from my perspective, this analogy, I find it helpful between in a sense, divine creation on the one hand and um, human procreation on the other. This idea of parents and children, because having a uh, child is actually quite a sobering decision. You know, we don't we don't always think about it that way. Um, but when we choose to have children, like we're doing something that we know full well will lead to serious suffering in another's life because even the most fortunate of lives include some serious suffering. And even more than that, we know that one day our, our children will suffer death. Like that's, oh, I have trouble like getting that out of my mouth, right? That's like a very sobering. And yet, most of us still do believe that having children can be not only a permissible thing to do, but actually a loving thing to do. And normally it's very difficult to say that about something that you know full well will cause suffering and even death in another person's life. So why do we, why do we think that? Um, and I think perhaps, you know, one of the answers is um, that the children we have, they wouldn't exist otherwise. We're not just, we're not just giving them any old thing when we bring them into existence. We're giving them life. We're actually bringing them into existence. And so part of you know, what my research is um, asking, at least, is could we think about God in a similar sort of way? Not an easy decision, not just um, dismissing the objection as no big deal, saying, no, this is a difficult decision for a parent. This is a sobering decision for a parent. But we do believe that a parent can bring a child into the world, even knowing that they're going to suffer and even one day die, even though the human parent is sometimes helpless to help with the suffering, when the suffering occurs, could it be the case then that God, despite this sobering decision, could be loving by creating a universe in which we came to exist, if he's going to offer every one of us an eternal life, which will be a wonderful good to us, and if he didn't stay just far off, but when he saw his children suffering, was willing to draw near and even suffer alongside them? That's a question that I think is worth considering. Yeah. Gosh, Vince, thank you so much. So much to think about. And um, 
And yeah, as I said, you know, there's there's much more to be kind of looked into. If I'll I'll include links um, to your books and things like that because there's lots more helpful things. But thank you so much for sharing and being so vulnerable and and speaking so powerfully about such a difficult topic. Thank you, Vince. No, thank you. It's always great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. And please do let us know what you thought of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch with us on social media. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.